Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. You know, every day I write a little rant that we post over at buzzflash.com, and I share it with you. Typically, it's the first thing that I talk about when I go on the air. And I was looking over some of those rants that I've done in the past this morning, and I saw this one from March 24th. So, you know, this is, what, three months ago? April, May, June, July, four months ago. And... It was, you know, the third week of March, it was as Americans were just starting to die in large numbers. I think, you know, at that point, we were maybe at a few hundred dead Americans. And in that op-ed, in that, you know, rant that I did that day on the air and in that piece that we published on BuzzFlash, I asked the question, why? Why specifically had Donald Trump procrastinated for two months? Now, keep in mind, that was in March. We had our first case diagnosed on January 20th, as did South Korea. Same day, us in South Korea. They've had a few hundred people die. Total, we've had 150,000 die. They have crushed the curve, flattened the curve. Life is relatively normal again in South Korea. Not here. So why did Trump initially procrastinate for two months? You know, I asked this question back in March. Why did he procrastinate through January and February and early March? What happened? Was he trying to squeeze a few extra months of revenue out of his hotels? Was it that he was watching Fox News and he believed their spin and then he echoed it himself and then Fox picked up their echo and said it more and you got this this horrible feedback loop? Was he creating a deadly right-wing feedback loop with Fox News without even realizing it? Did he procrastinate by a few months so that his billionaire buddies could unload all their stocks before things crashed? Was it because at some weird level Donald Trump actually wants to destroy America? Is he trying to punish us because he and his family were never accepted into high society? Because, because many Americans, you know, look at him with disdain. He's gaudy, he's gauche, he's, he's, uh, he's been accused of raping women. He's, you know, is, is it that he's trying to punish us for not loving and respecting him? Why, if that's the case, if he's trying to destroy this country, He's obviously doing a very good job of it. He's, you know, I mean, Steve Bannon said his, you know, their, their number one goal was to dismantle 
the administrative state, deconstruct the administrative state was the phrase he used. Well, that's, you know, geek speak for take apart the American government. Why would Donald Trump want to take apart the American government? Why is it okay with him? In fact, he seems enthusiastic about more Americans dying. Why, you know, just yesterday, why, this morning, why is he continuing to push hydroxychloroquine, a drug that causes heart attacks as a side effect and kidney damage and has no impact at all on COVID-19 before, during, or after a none? Why is he doing this? No other, no other, literally no other democracy in the world, functioning democracy in the world, has a leader who is doing this. Whose benefit is Donald Trump doing this for? Was it because he knew it was going to hit the economy and it would hurt his, hurt his re-election chances and he thought maybe he could just bluster his way through it the way he's blustered his way through everything else in his life? I think that's, you know, probably the most charitable answer. But increasingly, I don't, I don't think that's the case. Why did he delay? Why did he delay those initial two months? Why has he now delayed six months? We still have no national program to deal with COVID-19. None. There's no national mandate. There's no national education. The message is completely incoherent. You've got, you know, individual states each going their own way. And those red states that are running the libertarian, hey, you're on your own buddy path. They're melting down with COVID. And there's still, you've still got Ducey in Arizona and, and uh, DeSantis down in Florida and, and, and Greg Abbott in Texas going, oh, that's not my problem. I mean, in Arizona, the governor just a, just a few days ago said, oh, okay, cities, if you want to mandate a mask, you can do that. Why? In, on March 24th, I wrote, this is going to cost tens of thousands of lives, deaths that are completely unnecessary, and it's going to wreak massive damage to our healthcare system and the people who work on it, in it. Little did I realize in March that today it wouldn't be tens of thousands of dead Americans. It's over 100,000. We're going to have a quarter million dead Americans by the end of the year if we keep going down this path. So here we are four months after I asked that question, six, six, seven months into this, into this pandemic, 150,000 people dead. And I'm still asking why, why do you think Donald Trump is doing this? Is it that he is so into his own magical thinking that, I mean, you know, he continues to insist that the Central Park Five actually raped and and tried to kill that young woman. It turns out, you know, obviously they had nothing to do with it, but he's still, he's still, I mean, he's still arguing occasionally that Obama wasn't born in America. Is it that he just like makes crap up and then that's part of his psychopathology, has to believe it? Does he believe that this thing is going to go away? Did somebody tell him once, oh, you know, it'll be like the flu, it's seasonal. It'll be, you know, it's it's just going to, don't worry. And he's internalized that? Or is some oligarch whispering in his ear? We know that, you know, Freedom Works and some of the groups supported by the Kochs and others, you know, other right-wing billionaires are saying, reopen America. Or is it some foreign government that wants to see America brought to its knees? 
Is it the crown prince of Saudi Arabia? Is it the president of Russia? Is it the, you know, is it the, the president of Hungary? Why is he doing this? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. America deserves an answer, and this is the one question that I've never seen the media even really seriously attempt to answer. Why? Debbie in Oakland, California. Hey, Debbie, what's on your mind today? You asked why Trump was doing this, why he's letting all these Americans die. Have you ever heard of Malthus? I only heard of You're talking about Robert Thomas Malthus? I think that, yeah, I think that's it. He believed in killing poor people. Well, Malthus's theory was that if you increase the food supply, you're going to increase the population and the population will increase to the point where it exceeds the food supply. And then you're going to have starvation and the population will collapse. And he projected or, or argued that, I mean, this was in the 16 or 1700s, argued that uh, over time, what you would see is these cycles of boom and bust with regard to population as population and food supply interacted. Uh, you know, Malthusian theory really informed Paul Ehrlich and his wife when they wrote the population bomb back in the 70s. So what? I've heard there are neo-Malthusians. And, well, let's face it, yes. Trump is stupid. And he might have thought this is a good idea to kill poor people. So get rid of the useless eaters is what I think libertarians, how libertarians refer to unemployed people. Yeah, it may well be, Debbie. It may well be. That's, that's as good a reason as I've heard from anybody else. Philip in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Hey, Philip, what's up? Hey, Tom. Yeah, I got a couple uh, answers to some of your questions, my opinions, I guess. Maybe three or four of them I can give real quick. First of all, right off the bat, the number one thing is, is when the reason he didn't do anything is because the main thing is, is everybody knows he's totally incompetent. He can't do anything. He's a failure at business. He's a failure at school. I mean, he, he's just a failure as far as anything like that goes. The other thing is, is that Donald Trump does hate this country, and I think you might have mentioned this earlier. He demonstrated this about how he wants to be loved when he had all of his cabinet members when he first became president just say nice things about him at his meeting, like, you know, just say what you think about me. He has to hear that, and I think he's getting back in America for that because he knows the majority of people, well, you know, here and there do dislike him. And I also think that if there, you know, were a devil and someone that was 100% evil, it would be Donald Trump. I mean, he is the most evil person I've ever known existed in the history of our world, if you take everything yeah, that it, he it, does. It, it uh, reminds you of Hannah Arendt's uh, comment about the banality of evil. Philip, I get what you're saying. I wonder if he thought, hey, as long as it's killing people in blue states, you know, when it's in Washington and Oregon and New York and New Jersey and Connecticut, that's fine. And he never expected it to hit the red states. He thought somehow magically it wasn't going to. But now he's got a problem. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I mean, that's just another theory, right? Uh, why is he doing it? Is he doing it because somebody is saying, hey, you really need to destroy your country. So for our Tom Harbin Insider video that's available over at TomHarbin.com, I'm talking about Donald Trump just completely giving in 
to Erdogan of Turkey, the president of Turkey, the dictator of Turkey now, and this theory that Jared Kushner okayed the killing, at least the capture, perhaps the killing of Jamal Khashoggi to Mohammed bin Salman, and that Erdogan has the tape of it, and that when he called up Donald Trump and said, I want you to pull out of Syria and give me those Kurds so I can kill them and take that land, that he did it because Erdogan threatened him. And then Erdogan comes to the United States a week or two later and gets a whole state dinner thing. Check it all out. It's over at TomHartman.com. I think you'll find it fascinating. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. I wanted to give you uh, my reason why I think Trump does what he does. And to be quite sure. honest with you, there's 63 million other, you know, Americans that do what they do. I just want to say real quick something about myself. All right, the first person I voted for when I was old enough to vote was Ronald Reagan, okay? And I was 18 years old. And I um, had a friend, and he, his father was from Hungary, okay? Now, his father was very well-known in my small Illinois town that I grew up in. But his father was, by all observations, a great American, all right? He he flew one of them huge American flags on his TV antenna. And he, long story short, the guy was an unapologetic and proud, frankly, Nazi. He had his Nazi uniform from when he fought with the Nazi army in Hungary. He had it, like, uh, encased in, like, plastic, you know, a plastic box, yes. And I learned a lot from just interacting with him. I don't know if you've ever actually known a real Nazi or not. I don't know if any of I have, actually. I've known several German Nazis. I lived in Germany for a year, and I got to know some of these really old— I knew one old guy who still thought that the cause was righteous, and I knew a bunch of them who were horribly embarrassed. Well, then you know where I'm coming from. Okay, there are, there are unapologetic Nazis out there. And he, yeah. was, he loved America, but he thought America was misguided. Okay, now flash forward to my experience in Iraq and Afghanistan. I noticed a big change that a lot of people didn't really quite understand, but I understood it once I analyzed it. I saw a big change between when we went from the combat phase in Iraq to the nation-building phase. I saw a lot of um, just real resentment for, you know, human rights, a lot of disdain for, frankly, things that America stand for, okay? And, and these things manifest in certain ways. Like, here's one thing nobody ever talks about. In Iraq, there was a lot of just wanton murder of dogs, you know, stray dogs, because Iraq is Arabic, right? And, and they, don't, they don't, you know, keep dogs as pets, generally speaking, all right? And there's a lot of stray dogs, and I saw a lot of Americans do sadistic things, out-of-character sadistic things that they wouldn't normally do. And anyways, it's a big, huge, long story, and it's a big concept, but I'll just give you the short thing and let you riff on it if you want. I honestly believe you have 30 seconds, they, simply do, they simply do not like to be Americans, and we need to figure out a way to deal with that. Maybe we can just ignore it. Go ahead. No, I think we have fascists in our midst. I mean, you know, and, and we always have. But, you know, now they're, they're well-armed, they're organizing into groups, and they're doing it in large part because Donald Trump has basically 
called for it. He's put out the call. I mean, he explicitly said it back during the campaign. I've got the bikers. I've got the police. I've got the tough guys. I've got the Second Amendment people. And, uh, you know, we have fascists in our midst and they're killing us. They, you know, they've been killing us ever since, uh, you know, but Tim McVeigh, actually even before that, but Tim McVeigh was kind of the, the, the kickoff of the modern, you know, murderous fascist movement. And now they've moved into the mainstream. And I think that they're infiltrating these protests and provoking and providing Donald Trump with the, the visuals that he wants and Bill Barr. And I think it's bringing out their fascist tendencies. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're reading today in the Tom Hartman Book Club from my old friend Armin Lehman's book, the late Armin Lehman. The book is titled In Hitler's Bunker, a boy soldier's eyewitness account of the Fuhrer's last days. My friend Armin was the 16-year-old who gave the bad news to Hitler, and then he watched as Hitler walked into the room and committed suicide. It opens with an introduction from Arthur Axman, the leader of the Hitler Youth in April of 45. There's only victory or annihilation. Know no bounds in your hatred of the enemy. It is your duty to watch when others tire, to stand when others weaken. Your greatest honor is your unshakable fidelity to Adolf Hitler. It was with words such as these that the Third Reich's Hitler youth leader, Arthur Axman, exhorted 10-year-old boys and girls being sworn into the Hitler youth in Berlin on the eve of Adolf Hitler's last birthday. The children were being inducted into the junior echelons of the movement, the Jungvolk, the young folk, and the Jungmadl, the young maidens. I was looking on, then age 16, a member of the Hitler youth Volkssturm, literally people's storm. The Volkssturm was the home defense force of old men and young boys hastily assembled in the dying days of the war. Every able-bodied male between the ages of 16 and 55 was ordered to put on whatever uniform he could find, anything from postman's uniforms to firefighter's uniforms, and fight for the fatherland. The Russians called us totals because we were the result of total war. The Wehrmacht called us stew because we were a mixture of old meat and green vegetables. However, I had recently distinguished myself in battle and had even been awarded the Iron Cross second class. The Hitler youth leader, Arthur Axman, at 32, was the youngest of the senior Nazis around Hitler, but his influence within Hitler's inner circle was growing daily toward the end of the war as he pledged that the Hitler youth movement would fight to the death for the Fuhrer and the fatherland. In Hitler's last days, Axman was one of only a handful of Nazis, including Hitler's private secretary, Martin Bormann, and the cynical propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, who enjoyed the Fuhrer's absolute trust and confidence. Axman had personally selected me to present to Hitler on the occasion of his 56th birthday at a ceremony in the Reich Chancellery in Berlin, partly because of my recent distinction in fighting the Russians, but partly, I suspect, because my role in the Hitler Youth Unit was as a courier, a melder. Hitler had won his Iron Cross as a courier in the First World War. I think that Axman saw that as a lucky sign of some sort. At that moment, our Fuhrer could do with every bit of luck he could get. As I watched Axman, I did not realize it, but victory for the Allies was no longer in doubt. Germany was being overrun from every direction. City after city was being turned into ash under a ferocious Allied bombing campaign, unprecedented in its intensity. I, along with several hundred other teenage soldiers of the Hitler Youth Volkssturm, was among the last who would serve Hitler's regime in Berlin, in the much vaulted Zitadel, Citadel of the Fuhrer's last redoubt in the dying days of the war. I didn't know it at the time, but I would soon be serving as a courier in his bunker beneath the chancellery. It was an experience that would bring me into contact with some of the most notorious Nazis of the time, as well as some of the most decent soldiers and civilians struggling to cope with the death wish Hitler had imposed upon all Germans. Facing total defeat, the Fuhrer was now willing to sacrifice everything and everybody, including even the youngest and most innocent of German lives. It wasn't just males, either. The Bund Deutscher Model, the German Girls' Legion, or BDM, was the female section of the Hitler Youth. They, too, sacrificed their lives for the Fuhrer. I did not realize at the time that Germany faced total defeat. 
I still believed in the myth of our, quote, miracle weapons that was widely circulated before the end of the war. I had no comprehension of the sheer evil that was at the heart of the Nazi regime. Yet I was prepared to lay down my life for Hitler in defense of the fatherland and the noble ideals of the National Socialist Movement. I was elated at the prospect of greeting Hitler the following morning on his 56th and last birthday. To comprehend why anybody can have been so thoroughly taken in by such a deception, one must understand a little about my background. I was four years old when Adolf Hitler became Reich Chancellor of a coalition cabinet in Germany. It was 30 January 1933. Later that historic date became known as Die Machtgefrung, the seizure of might. Absolute power, as Hitler has taught us, often brings about primal chaos. But in Hitler's case, it went beyond that. His absolute control over the minds of countless individuals created a living hell that destroyed the lives of millions of people in a human catastrophe too enormous to comprehend. In Hitler's Bunker. Mike in Seattle. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Hey, I was just listening to Mary Trump's book, and I got through all seven hours of it. And oh, I my. Think she you has, got the book on tape. Yes, and I believe it's a bestseller, and it needs to sell it more. Is. Because it really does get to the heart of the question. That family is all about money. The father, uh, Donnie's father, was a mess. And he encouraged mm -hmm. this activity. He didn't even have the decency to really take care of his elder son, who was supposed to be the heir apparent, and uh, didn't even have the decency to tell her that he was in the hospital dying, said, ask your mother in the morning. I mean, her revelations are just unbelievable. And her summary is fantastic. So please, look at that. They are all about the money. They don't care about anything else. And that is so, so clear. I get all that, Mike, and I can see where, you know, when Donald Trump thought, that, well, this is only hitting states where, you know, uh, there's a lot of Democrats living or it's not in any place where I have a hotel outside of New York, that maybe he thought that if he just kind of procrastinated on the virus for a few months, he could squeeze a few more months of revenue out of his properties. And frankly, I think that that may have been one of his principal motivations. But, you know, it seems like that would have evaporated by the end of May when it was obvious that this he thing was starting to... Go ahead. He can't stand failure. He cannot accept failure. He cannot be told that he's a failure. Trump, you are a failure. Everybody yes. needs to scream that and he will go insane. Okay? Yeah. He cannot admit that he's failed at anything. That is one of his big problems. Yeah, I got it. And I agree with Mike, thank you for the call. Steve in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hey, good morning there, Tom. Nice to talk to you here. Thanks. When speaking of Phoenix here, the plants and the trees are stressed more this year than I've seen in the past, and we've been here for 30-some years. Oh, it's um, going to be 105 just down the road from us on the river here, on the Columbia River at the Dells. It's never been that hot in that part of Oregon ever before. That's, that's what Phoenix was like 20, 30 years ago. On yeah, a bad we, summer day. We, we still had our days higher than that, but you guys aren't prepared for that. I feel sorry for you guys, you know. Oh, we're going to have not. another fire season. 
Oh, God, yes, that's going to happen, too. The one thing I'd like to also mention, the ancillary things here, I just had some abnormal tests that came back, and people have to go get further testing done, further MRIs, surgeries, and things like that. And you're not only scared on account of the medical consequences, you're terrified of getting COVID. Yeah, but anyways, yeah, yeah. who wants to walk this? into a hospital right now? So why do you think exactly. Trump is doing this? Well, why I think he's doing it, he's, he's had failed businesses. And Vladimir, you know, I've mentioned this in the past once, I think once too. He, Vladimir's got to have some goods on him. Either he's got Trump's debt over him or some other bad stuff. And I think every decision that he's made benefits Vladimir. In fact, I saw something today about his last conversation with Putin. Trump, it was not brought up about the bounty on our American soldiers' heads. Well, Vladimir's not going to bring it up, and, and Trump wouldn't bring it up. So yeah, one no, other he, thing I'd like to point out, if I may. Steve, um, you may not. I'm sorry. We're out of time. Hey, we're putting together a series of American history books. It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican War on voting. Coming out soon is the hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's going to be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. This is another sad story about, you know, again, why I'm trying to wrap my head around why Donald Trump is enthusiastically embracing, essentially, you know, a quarter million dead Americans by the end of the year. Why? How can this be a good thing? I, you know, I get it that back in 1929, when the economy crashed, because of, you know, Republican deregulation of Wall Street back in 1921 with Warren Harding when he got elected. His whole, his whole campaign thing was, you know, basically, well, his slogan was less government in business, more business in government, or words to that effect, close to that. And basically what it meant was privatize and deregulate. So, you know, he did. He massively deregulated banking, the banking industry in Wall Street in the 1920s. That led to the roaring 20s. The stock market went through the roof. Huge bubble. The bubble burst in, 19, in October of 1929. And Herbert Hoover was president, a Republican. And for the next three years, he did nothing, essentially. I mean, he ended up in, in 1932 actually putting together some programs. But they were relatively small and relatively ineffectual. And they didn't do anything. Now, why did he not do anything? Because Herbert Hoover believed that the economy would essentially eventually correct itself. And I get it that probably Donald Trump in the beginning, in January and February, when we really didn't know much about this new virus. I mean, this was a brand new disease. It had never been in the human population ever in the history of the world. We didn't know what its normal course was. We didn't know if it was seasonal. We didn't know if the virus was vulnerable to temperature or humidity, the way the flu virus is. We just didn't know any of this stuff. And so I think sort of he could be forgiven for saying, well, you know, maybe it'll just go away in January. And maybe he could be forgiven for saying that in February, although I'm not forgiving him. Because I think by February, the science was in and it was pretty solid. I mean, we had known about this virus since the previous November. It was November, the previous November 
that the United States intelligence services were notifying Israel that if this virus gets in the Middle East, look out. But by March and April and May, he knows that this is not going to go away with the summer. It's not going to go away with humidity or dryness. It's not going to go away with time. That I mean, we now see, you saw this study where they looked at 100 people who had COVID and did MRIs of their hearts. These were all people who had recovered. Only two of them had a severe case and had to be intubated. All the rest of them had mild cases. And they looked at them months later and found that 78 out of the 100, as I recall, get the report. Yeah, 78 out of the 100 still had ongoing cardiovascular abnormalities after recovery with 60 of them showing, quote, ongoing myocardial inflammation. 78% heart damage from mild cases. We're just now starting to really, you know, seriously look into this. And what we're finding is horrible. And still Donald Trump is saying, oh, don't worry, we've got therapeutics. When he was talking to the press, he was like, I'm a therapeutics guy. Just take your hydroxychloroquine, which is we know is a lie. Pilgrim Boston Hospital, a fellow by the name of Rudrish Patak, uh, was in the ICU for weeks. He was intubated, and then they took the tube out, and he recovered. He recovered. Wonderful story. His family applauded him. The hospital, they came to wheel him out of the hospital, and everybody lined up in the aisle and shook, you know, shook his hand and applauded him. And then... He died. Ten days after he was applauded, ten days after he left the hospital, he died. The story came out of a study that was published out of University College London. And they looked at 125 patients with COVID in that study. And 77 of them had strokes. Now, most of these strokes were minor. They produce things like, you know, hey, your leg drags a little bit or you have a hard time remembering names or colors look funny or whatever. You know, they damage the brain, but not in ways that were life ending or debilitating. But a lot of them were major. And what they found, they write infections have long been known as a risk factor for strokes. With COVID-19, you're more likely to suffer a worse type of stroke with multiple large artery blockages in the brain, more severe disability, and a greater chance of dying from the stroke, according to David Waring, professor of clinical neurology at University College London. And that's exactly what happened to this, this fellow who left the hospital. Waring said evidence suggests 1% to 5% of people who have COVID-19 may have a stroke, regardless of their symptoms. He said there's growing evidence that the coronavirus may be linked to problems with the brain, including strokes in some people. One to five percent. We'll be back with more of your calls and the news of the day right after this is the Tom Hartman program, the place where smart people get their news. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes 
into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book in today's Tom Hartman Book Club is by Harvey J.K., Professor Harvey K. Take hold of our history. Make America radical again. This is from the introduction. On December 1st, 1862, in the midst of the Civil War, just weeks before he was to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, President Abraham Lincoln delivered his annual message to Congress. Lincoln firmly believed that the United States had an historic responsibility to demonstrate to the world that people can govern themselves, make equal rights not just a self-evident truth, but a manifest one and create a political and economic order in which working people, both white and black, 
are not compelled to bow to anyone, neither aristocrats nor capitalists. Empowered by tens of thousands of black slaves who were already liberating themselves from bondage by escaping to the Union lines, and increasingly confident that the majority of his fellow Americans would recognize the truth of what he was saying, Lincoln closed his address by calling on them to see that the time had come to remember who they were and what that demanded. He told them that to save the nation and all that it represented, they must live up to the nation's declared revolutionary purpose and promise and act to radically enhance American freedom by bringing an end to slavery. This is a quote from Lincoln's address. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. We say we are for the Union. The world will not forget that we say this. We know how to save the Union. The world knows we do know how to save it. We, even we here, hold the power and bear the responsibility. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free, honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. End of quote from Lincoln. Back to Harvey. We too cannot escape history. Our own struggle to save the nation and the promise it proclaims has begun. Finally, after more than 40 years of fear-driven class war and culture war campaigns against the democratic achievements of generations, the hard-won rights of workers, women and people of color, and the very memory of how they were secured, and now both in the wake of the election debacle of 2016, which gave the presidency to the corrupt, mendacious, racist, sexist, and treacherous demagogue Donald Trump, and continued control of Congress to the formerly conservative but increasingly reactionary Republican Party, and in the face of intensified class and culture war campaigns, we the people have come not only to recognize that American democratic life is in jeopardy, but also to mobilize in hopes of saving it. Millions of us have rallied to the resistance and expressed our democratic fears and desires in action in the historic Women's March and March of For Our Lives of Young People, the protests, demonstrations, and legal actions to defend the lives and rights of immigrants and refugees, the Me Too movement to combat sexual assault and harassment, the massive teacher strikes for higher pay and better funding of public schools in states red and blue, and the enthusiastic canvassing and campaigning for a blue wave to win back Congress in the 2018 midterm elections. But resistance is not enough. The time has come for us to remember who we are and what that demands. The time has come for us to embrace our radical history. The history of how a generation of Americans, high and low, and in all their diversity, not only turned their colonial rebellion into a war for independence, but also imbued American life, whether they all intended it or not, with radical imperative and impulse by declaring a revolutionary promise of freedom, equality, and democracy for all. The history of how generations of radicals and reformers served as the prophetic memory of that promise and how generations of ordinary men and women, native-born and immigrant, struggled to make real the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and to expand not only the we in we the people, but also the powers of the people. And most especially in view of the crises we ourselves face, the history of how our greatest generations confronted and prevailed over the forces 
that threatened to destroy the nation and bury its revolutionary promise in the 1770s, 1860s, and 1930s and 1940s, not to mention the 1960s, by acting to make the United States, both inspired by Washington, Lincoln, and FDR, and pushing them to go farther than they might otherwise have gone, radically freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. The time has come to take hold of that history and make America radical again. I've titled this collection of my speeches and essays, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, for reasons that will become obvious. And yet I cannot help but confess that if I had had to title it otherwise, I would have been sorely tempted to use, with full attribution, the title Max Lerner gave to his 1938 work, It Is Later Than You Think, The Need for a Militant Democracy. While it may not seem so, the crisis we face is no less demanding of action, urgent action, than that which confronted his generation. The book Take Hold of Our History by Harvey J.K. And welcome back. Oh, this is uh, over at Politico. Jake Sherman is reporting that when they reported, when Politico reported that Louis Gohmert had tested positive, yeah, that guy, Louis Gohmert, congressman from Texas, if you're not familiar, one of the most stereotypical politicians in America. I don't know how to put it beyond that without sounding like I'm trash talking, you know, a whole group of people, but, you know, golly, that's Gohmert, that's Louis Gohmert. He went back to his office after he tested positive to talk to his staff. And this is mind-boggling. This is, and so when Politico reported this, when Jake Sherman reported this, one of his staff members, one of Louis Gohmert's staff members, reached out an email to Jake Sherman over on Politico.com and said, Jake, thank you for letting our office know that Louis tested positive for the coronavirus. When you write your story, can you include the fact that Louis requires the full staff to be in the office, including three interns, so that, quote, we could be an example to America on how to open up safely, end quote. When probing the office, you might want to ask how often people were berated for wearing masks. Back in June, he told CNN, if I get it, you'll never see me without a mask. We'll see. So far, a number of members of Congress have gotten this virus. Mario Diaz-Balart, the Republican from Florida. Neil Dunn, Republican from Florida. Morgan Griffith, Republican from Virginia. Mike Kelly, Republican from Pennsylvania. Beth McAdams, a Democrat from Utah. And Tom Rice, a Republican from South Carolina. Jake Sherman and his team, Anna Palmer, Garrett Ross, and uh, Eli Oaken over at Politico all uh, emailed all the members of, well, I'll, I'll just read you what they said. Uh, he writes, we emailed three people in Gomert's office this morning. Once we heard about the positive test, they all ignored it. When we finally got Connie Hare, yeah, H-A-I-R, Gomert's chief of staff on the phone. This is strange. Connie Hare? He's bald. Anyway, when we finally got Connie Hare, Gomer's chief of staff, on the phone, she said she would not answer any questions because Politico is a, quote, propaganda outlet. It's mind-boggling. Absolutely mind-boggling. Shane in San Diego. Hey, Shane, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Good morning. Uh, I was uh, calling in to talk about your question uh, regarding why Trump is allowing this pandemic to just run rampant. And, uh, right. 
I think uh, one notion I have about this is it comes from a line that I read in a review of Moby Dick years ago and kind of, uh, to me, explains our, our polarized political climate right now, and that's that ideas are philosophical, attitudes are psychological. And it uh, kind of goes back to what you were just saying about the idiot. What does that uh, mean? About their, it means that when you're talking about philosophy, you're talking about science, you're talking about thought, you're talking about ideas, and I think what we have right now is just pure attitude, all attitude all the time. There's no ideas mm. underlying the ideology anymore. And, so uh, then it's not a definable ideology. Right. No, it's just, it's, it's pure attitude having overtaken any kind of coherent philosophy. And I think yeah, that, that the realization sense. that this is a problem that can only be solved by science and by ideas has Trump and his supporters immediately moved to reject any kind of intellectual solution in favor of pure anti-science attitude. Yeah. I think a big part of that attitude, maybe the sine qua non of the attitude, is a refusal to feel subjugated by nature. I think part of this is that they need to feel like they're dominating nature at all times and testing, tracing, wearing masks. It doesn't feel very dominant. So, yeah, you know, if I, shotguns could take out the virus, then you'd get a whole different attitude. Yeah, it makes that makes a lot of sense. Shane, thank you for the call. Well said. I think you summarized it very tightly. Nathan in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Nathan, what's up? Hi, Tom. A couple of years ago, I talked to you about fascism and the 14 little check marks. You know what I'm talking about. The, yeah, the defining um, characteristics, yes. How many check marks are left? Would None. be my question. We're, we're there. Hard we're there. If you take the list that Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, you know, a bunch of people have taken photos of that list. That's uh, and I'm not sure if it's from the one in in Jerusalem or the one in D.C., but they've uh, posted them online. They're all over the internet, and you know, we are in the midst of a fascist coup in the United States, and it's not complete yeah. yet, but it is way farther down the road than I think most people realize, and this is not good news for the United States. We have to push back. The definition of being of fascism uh, being the merger of corporate and state interests. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I just wanted yep. to make Absolutely. sure of that. Thank you, Nathan. Lowell in Salem, Oregon. Hey, Lowell, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I wanted to talk about the Democratic platform and how it appears to be an empty gesture with the experience I had with my congressman, Kurt Schrader. He said they pay no attention to the platform, and it seems like a waste of energy for the progressives to have, have spent all this time fighting for a platform that the party really ignores, or at least this one congressman we have. Ignored. Well, for yeah, Kurt, Kurt Schrader is a, you know, is a conservative. He's the only, I believe, the only person, the only member of Congress. He's, you know, he represents where I used to live in Southern Portland and, uh, you know, in Northern Oregon, um, whose primary challenger I put on the air twice. He didn't win. Schrader won the election. Uh, I mean, he's an incumbent. He's got massive advantages. But just because Kurt Schrader is, is a lousy Democrat doesn't, doesn't mean we're not a progressive, shall we say. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's up for sale and, you know, it takes money from corporate interests and then, you know, dances to their tune. Just because Kurt Schrader does that and, and you know, not, not an insignificant number of other Democrats do, doesn't mean that we shouldn't get this stuff in the platform. Single payer health care. 
has been in the Democratic Party platform since since the late 70s or, or 1980. I mean, it's been there for a long, long time. Uh, Harry Truman was the first to introduce it. Sometimes things take time. You still keep making your statements, right? You, you, st- you continue to say, no, wait a minute, this is what we believe. We have to have these statements of belief over and over and over again. Penny in Sarasota, Florida. Hey, Penny, what's up? If you think that Donald Trump is a nightmare, wait until 2024 when Rick Scott runs, who is a senator now from Florida. I don't think Rick Scott would have as much luck. I mean, Rick Scott has been able to basically, you know, he was involved in a massive multi-million dollar, billion dollar Medicare fraud. Him and his company was convicted of the largest Medicare fraud in history. He walked away from that with, uh, I believe, over $100 million, used that money to become governor of Florida, then used that money to become United States senator. I don't think that he could play in the really big leagues. I don't think he could run for president. But I think Tom Cotton is going to. And Tom Cotton just, you know, nakedly displays his fascist tendencies or embraces his fascist beliefs. So I'm with you. Trump is incompetent. Wait until a competent fascist comes down the road. Chris in Brooklyn, New York. Got a minute to the break, Chris. Quick one. Okay. On June 1st, Tom, you know, Trump declared war in the United States when he cleared Lafayette Park. Well, the Natural Resources Committee finally had a meeting about this when Bill Barr was smirking his way through his lies and testimony. And you got to, you know, people have to go and look at this. It was two hours of uh, the acting Chief Monaghan dissembling, Mm -hmm. lying, denying. And then the third hour was the major from the National Guard. And his testimony was far more credible. And he also didn't believe there was a riot that day. He thought they overreacted. And he also found CS canisters. You know, so yeah, it was tear gas. Yeah, uh, you know there are, there are a few voices willing to tell the truth, and uh, what, what Donald Trump has been doing is he's been weeding them out, <laughs> getting rid of them as rapidly, as aggressively as he can, and uh, it ain't good. Helping you win the water cooler wars right here. In this week's Science Revolution, concerning news that we may have hit a tipping point for methane in the Arctic, Professor Richard Wolf drops by to discuss a pandemic tax to help fund the COVID-19 recovery for the common good. Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear visits to connect the FBI raids of the Ohio House Speaker to the billion-dollar bailout of two very dangerous age-degraded nuclear power plants. And in Geeky Science, there's a new study out about how sitting confuses your body's fat or fit system. Find the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Tom Harmon here with you. Susan in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Susan, what's up? Well, our Democratic headquarters in Phoenix was firebombed, and it was totally destroyed. It's been there for over 20 years, and to me, it's like an act of war. I, but I haven't heard anything about it nationally. Yeah, I saw a small so story in the New York Times about that, and I haven't seen any other mention so far. What I heard yesterday was that they have no idea. They've not been able to find who did this. Is that still the case? Yes, it is. We still don't know who did it. Yeah, that's amazing. It is It is like an act of war. I agree with you, Susan. That's That's terrible. Thank you for the call. Jen in Houston, Texas. Hey, Jen, what's up? 
Oh, yeah. Hi, Tom. Th- thank you for taking my call. So I have COVID right now. I got it oh last week and I'm, I'm still recovering. I'm really pretty upset. I work in a nursing home and I knew when Abbott was saying that he was going to reopen the economy, I knew it wasn't going to be good. But what can I do as an ordinary citizen that's been affected by this now, what can I do to wake this idiot up? Because it yeah. is cause and effect. Literally, you cannot reopen an economy when there's 10,000 cases a day. And um, right. I'm, I'm one of the victims, too. And I, I, I really want my voice to be heard. What can I do as an ordinary citizen so that people will not die needlessly? Because I had patients that died, literally, and it's so heart-wrenching and I'm glad I survived, but I'm still recovering right now. I still have shortness of breath and stuff. All right. Jen, the, you know, the three things, number one, make sure that you're registered to vote and apply for a vote by mail ballot. And if you don't get it, raise hell. Uh, Number two, wake up as many people as you possibly can to what's going on using social media, using your email list, you, you know, whatever. However, you can reach out to friends, family, neighbors. And number three, if possible, and and I wouldn't recommend this to you because you have COVID, but if possible, show up at a demonstration. The history of the world tells us that large popular movements can slow down or even stop or reverse moves toward fascism in countries. And that's what we need to do here. If there's a fourth or fifth uh, strategy, you know, it doesn't come to my mind immediately. Maybe somebody will call in and say, oh, you should add this to that list. I would love to. But that's that's what comes to my mind, Jen. Does that help? Start? Yeah, that helps a lot. Yes, it does. Thank yeah. you. You can also Thank call you. your members of Congress. The phone number for Congress is 202-224-3121. Even call your Republican members and, and just tell them, you know, I don't consent. You know, this is being done in my name and I don't I'm not in, in agreement with this. And for that matter, you can contact your governor, Greg Abbott's, uh, you know, off. He's got offices around the state. And of course, he's got an office in the Capitol in Austin. Uh, you can reach out to them and let them know what you think. Jen, I got to move along. But thank you for the call. I wish you the very, very best. And keep us up to date on how you're doing recovering. OK. OK, thank you. Okay. Appreciate Thanks, Jen. Thank you. Boy, what a day, right? What an amazing day. Terry in Palm Coast, Florida. Hey, Terry, what's up? Hey, Tom. Good afternoon. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal today that says that Trump awarded Kodak $765 million loan to produce hydroxychloroquine, among other medications. And I wondered if you were aware of this, and if so, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, Louise and I were talking about this this morning. She has been following that story more closely than I, and I'll probably have a more informed opinion for you tomorrow. I haven't read that Wall Street Journal article, but I will do so. My understanding is that this might actually be, setting aside the hydroxychloroquine part of it, this might actually be one of the good things that the Trump administration has done, which I'm, you know, I'm gritting my teeth as I'm saying, but the fact of the matter is that the majority of our drugs are actually, the raw materials are made in China and the drugs are put together in uh, India. In fact, this newsletter that I got from a pharmacy in Canada that I've used in the past, they just sent me this uh, a couple days ago. They said the cost of the raw materials from China needed to make various drug products are skyrocketing. 
And with raw material costs soaring by as much as 360%, drug companies in India are lobbying their government to exempt them from mandated price control so they can recoup these costs. And in other words, our drugs are going to start going up in price. And, you know, one of the things that Peter Navarro has been advocating for some time now inside the, the Trump administration is that we make drugs in America again. So that's all I know about it right now, Terry. I think making drugs in the United States is, is an important thing, I think, both for national security and for, you know, just basically health security. You yeah. know, whether Trump is doing it the right way, the wrong way, how they're doing it, what they're doing, I'll have to fill you in later on in the week. Terry, thank you for the call. A new study that was, uh, this is a recent study, was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association's Cardiology Review. They looked at 100 coronavirus patients who had recovered. Only two of them required intubation. Most of them had mild cases. 78 out of the 100, 78 out of the 100 still had cardiovascular abnormalities after recovery, with 60 of them at 60% showing ongoing myocardial inflammation. They said the conditions, quote, appear to be independent of case severity and pre-existing conditions. So this is 100 people who had coronavirus. They just went back and said, hey, let's do MRIs of or whatever. Yeah, MRI exams of your hearts. 78 of them, heart damage. So tell me again, why is Donald Trump allowing this virus to run rampant in the United States? Is it just because he thought it was going to kill people in blue states? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Robin Feldman's book, Drugs, Money, and Secret Handshakes, The Unstoppable Growth of Prescription Drug Prices from Oxford University Press. This is from the introduction. Everyone has a limit. Every budget has an endpoint. Although sellers would love to raise prices continually, it doesn't take fancy economics to know that at some point the money runs out. Why isn't that basic principle working as expected in the pharmaceutical industry? Instead, drug prices are rising continually and reaching astronomical levels with no end in sight. In May 2018, analysts reported that a company is contemplating a $1.5 million price tag for new hemophilia cure. The current hemophilia therapies already cost an astounding $580,000 to $800,000 a year. Along the same lines, Spark Therapeutics' cure for a rare form of blindness will cost $850,000, rivaling Novartis' planned $475,000 price tag for its CAR-T drug, Chimera. Even outside the eye-popping headlines, prescription drug prices across the board have risen to an alarming and puzzling level. A government inspector general's report found that the high cost of brand medications for common conditions like diabetes, high cholesterol, and asthma were the true problem for patients on Medicare. In fact, pharmaceutical companies have raised the prices most sharply for commonly used medications such as these. Similarly, an analyst report concluded that in 2016, the average price for a set of specialty drugs known as orphan drugs was $140,000 a year, and the average price of ordinary drugs was almost $28,000 a year. The list price of drugs tells only part of the story, given the many rebate and discount processes that exist within the industry. Nevertheless, real spending for drugs is rising as well. According to the Health and Human Services Inspector General's report, even after accounting for rebates, Medicare spending for branded drugs still rose 62 percent between 2011 and 2015. Worse yet, the department responsible for Medicare and Medicaid projects that the increase in national prescription drug spending will more than double 
in 2018 from the prior year's significant rise. In 2017, this increase in spending outpaced increased healthcare spending as a whole and the 2017-2018 Consumer Price Index. All of this despite the fact that roughly 80% of the prescriptions in this country are filled using generic drugs. No one would ever suggest that spending within the healthcare system follows an ordinary, rational model. The patient as consumer does not absorb the full cost of health care given the effects of private insurance and government programs, nor does the consumer possess full information about the products purchased or the cost of choices, and even physicians experience information gaps. Most important, the value consumers place on their own lives creates distortions that differ from buying choices in ordinary markets. Nevertheless, dollars are finite and some limits must exist. One can see the mounting pressure in government budgets, which are struggling to cover the cost of new expensive medicines. If the Defense Department had treated all veterans, all VA patients, infected with hepatitis C in 2015 using the breakthrough cure Sovaldi, the $12 billion cost would have accounted for 20% of the department's annual medical budget just for treating a single disease. With budgets in the home, patients reporting rationing or foregoing medications for lack of funding. This is precisely the type of boundary point that should create pressure to reduce prices, and yet the rises persist. This book analyzes and explains the phenomenon which has puzzled modern commentators and policymakers alike. Why do drug prices stubbornly continue to rise despite the promise of competition from generic drugs? Quite simply, the phenomenon occurs because internal incentives push every market participant toward behaviors that increase prices, knocking out the normal checks that should operate as breakpoints on the market. At the center of the system lies the highly secret and highly concentrated industry known as pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs. These middle players negotiate prices between branded drug companies and those who pay the bills. They arrange for rebates from various drug companies. They also establish the formularies, which are the schedules that set the terms on which patients can access particular drugs and the reimbursement rate patients will get. The PBM middle players are supposed to act to ensure good bargains for patients and health insurers, but the reality is far from that ideal. Moreover, the system is deeply hidden. The contracts between the drug companies and the PBMs are a closely guarded secret, with the details known only to the drug companies and the PBMs themselves. Government entities and the private insurers who pay the bills are not permitted to see the full terms of the contracts. Those who pay are given periodic rebates without full information regarding the actual net pricing for any particular drugs. Markets thrive on information, and from the standpoint of competition, such an industry design is problematic at best. Despite the extreme secrecy, details have begun to seep out through case documents, including recent contract disputes among parties, government reports, reports to shareholders, state Medicaid actions, and industry insider reports. Placing together information from these original sources, this book presents, for the first time, a full picture of the perverse profit-taking incentive structures within the industry. The book demonstrates the way in which encouraging consumers to use drugs with higher prices operates in the interests of so many players, including doctors, clinics, hospitals, PBMs, brand drug companies, health plans, patient assistance programs, and patient advocacy programs. And then it continues from there. Drugs, Money, and Secret Handshakes by Robin Feldman.
We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 